Good morning, church family. Happy Easter. I want to talk to you this morning about resurrection hope. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative says this, Hope is your superpower. Don't let anybody or anything make you hopeless. Hope is the enemy of injustice. Hope is what will get you to stand up when people tell you to sit down. If you're a human being, here's how important hope is. Someone said that man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, and about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Easter is about hope. But it's not just hope for the future. Easter is about hope from the future. Jesus does not rise from the dead just so that you could have your personal sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. No, the Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he began an invasion of the future into the present. Hope of Easter is that the power by which God will finally defeat and destroy all sin, evil, suffering, and death, and restore everything at the end of time, that power has broken into history now. And that power is available partially, but substantially to us now when we place our faith and trust in Christ. This past year has been one of the most difficult years in many of our lives. We saw so much pain, death, disease, evil, and injustice. We collectively and personally experience so much loss. Are you struggling with cynicism this morning? Are you struggling with doubt this morning? Have you been tempted to give up in the midst of so much pain, suffering, and injustice? Well, I want to remind all of us today that the hope of Easter is that no matter how bleak things might look, God in Christ brought heaven to earth, the future into the present. And despite what we see on the evening news, the hope of Easter is that God is on the move in our world today to bring salvation, redemption, justice, and healing. And He will return someday to finish that work. And reckoning with this truth, just might revolutionize your life. Now, if the resurrection is the work of Jesus to restore what God intended, we need to ask, what did God intend? And to answer that question, let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, there is a Hebrew word that described all of creation functioning as God intended. And that word is shalom, that rich Hebrew word for peace, wholeness, completeness, universal flourishing. A state in which all things hold together so that nothing is missing and nothing is broken. We find this in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. The Hebrew word there for blessed is Baruch. God creates these people and He blessed them. That is, they find themselves in harmony, in the flow of their Creator's wishes and desires, living under His rule and reign. They're rightly related to God, rightly related to each other, and with creation. They're living in a world in which there is Shalom, wholeness, universal flourishing, spiritually, physically, socially, and culturally. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had now, central to the opening story is the context in which God's prized creation is placed. He is placed in a 
garden, which symbolizes shalom. The garden is the place in which creation functions as God intended. There is no death, there is no disease, no cancer, tornadoes or hurricanes. There is health and there is wholeness and there is life. So the story begins in the garden with people living in shalom, at peace and in harmony with their maker and with each other. Genesis 2, 25. Adam and his, and his wife Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, this kind of story rose out of an area called Mesopotamia. The writer of Genesis making a point bigger than just the literal details. You see, the word Adam in Hebrew means ground man or dirt man. And Eve literally means the mother of the living. In other words, these two people are representative of all of humanity. And their nakedness and not being ashamed is a larger statement about how they're relating to each other. You see, they're totally at ease with themselves and with each other. Totally accepting, totally trusting, totally vulnerable. There's no fronting. There's no wearing of masks. There's no pretending. Do you know what that's like? You ever have the experience of sharing something that you're deeply ashamed of with someone only to have that person respond by saying to you, you know, I love and respect you even more than ever now. What does that do? It touches something deep in your soul that was put there by God. You see, you were created to be fully known and fully loved without any fear of rejection or shame. And Adam and Eve are fully known and fully accepted without any fear of rejection. So the story opens with people experiencing shalom with their maker, at peace with each other, and with creation itself, living in the garden. But quickly things begin to fall apart. You see, God gives them the freedom to live this way under His rule and reign or some other way. God says you can do things as they're intended, enjoying life as it was meant to be, or you can do things your own way. And man and woman decide our own way. They take the fruit, which is some other way than God's way. Taking the fruit was man's emphatic declaration, I will be my own God. I will rule over my own kingdom. And I will do it my way. And right away, things begin to fall apart, unravel, and disintegrate. Genesis 3 Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I want you to notice that the first thing that happens as a result of sin is not murder or injustice of some kind. No, the first thing that happens is that they begin to hide from each other. I can't let you see me as I really am. I'm afraid that you might judge me and reject me. So I am going to cover up and hide, pretend, front. Fig leaves are nothing new. You have them. I have them. Fig leaves are our way of covering up our nakedness, that deep sense of, I'm not okay. What are your fig leaves? 
What are you using to cover up and to hide that sense of nakedness and shame? For some of us, it's our careers. For some of us, it's our financial security or physical beauty or perfectionism or even ministry and serving God. What do you look to so that you can say to yourself, See, 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 I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. But they don't just hide from each other. They hide from their creator, their maker. Genesis 3, 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I Hid. And there is that word again, fear. You and I are so very afraid. Some of us are very aware of our fear, while others of us are so successful in avoiding the things that we fear that we think that we don't have any fear. But did you know that the presence of fear may look like many other things like worry, anxiety, anger, depression, addiction. You and I are driven by fear. Fear of what other people think. Fear of not having enough. Fear of being alone. Fear of missing out. And fear of not measuring up. Is it any wonder that the words, do not fear is found 365 times in the Bible. I was afraid, so I hid. Sin's tragic consequences are they're disconnected now from their creator, their maker. And God is coming to them and saying with compassion, look where you are now. You've stepped outside my beautiful plans and purposes. You've come out from my rule and reign and look where it's left you. But since far-reaching consequences went beyond just them, it would lead to the unraveling of all of creation as God's judgment comes. Genesis 3, 17. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation becomes bondage to decay. Here's how the story ends. Genesis 3, 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life in the garden is symbolic of eternal living. And there is danger that these people are going to get stuck in this rapidly decaying situation and that they're going to be frozen there forever. So God in his mercy says, if you continue this way, it's going to get worse and worse. So God drives man and woman out from the garden. God drives them out east of Eden. How many of you know what it's like to live east of Eden? 
east of Eden is what life looks like for many of us. East of Eden is where the presence of God that was once life-giving and life-affirming is now traumatic. And the result is that we can't live with him and we can't live without him. Does anyone know what that's like? We want the love that comes from God because we were built, created to live for God, to serve God, and to love God. Our hearts will not rest until it finds its rest in Him. But we don't want Him to be our master. We don't want to submit to His Lordship. We want to be our own master, our own Lord, our own King. So when God draws near, we hide and we run. How long are you going to keep running from God? But east of Eden is where we don't just hide from God, but we hide from each other. East of Eden is where we front, we put on masks, we pretend. East of Eden is where we exploit one another and think nothing of diminishing the imago Dei in our fellow human being. East of Eden is where black and brown lives don't matter, don't get justice, and yes, people who look like me are invisible. East of Eden is where your zip code determines the quality of your education. East of Eden is where 700 billion people still live on less than $1 a day and millions more die from preventable diseases. East of Eden is where more than 65 million people are displaced. More than half of all refugees are children and every three seconds someone flees from their home from violent conflict. East of Eden is the place of injustice, racism, oppression, and war. East of Eden is where although we were once created to rule over nature, nature is now our enemy. That's why we die and our bodies break down. We get sick. East of Eden is a world of cancer, death, pandemics, disease, earthquakes, tornadoes, and natural disasters. Does anyone know what it's like to live east of Eden? But despite all this, God wasn't willing to start all over. Christians often don't know what to do with the Old Testament. But it's in the Old Testament that God reveals His plans to restore all of creation to its original intention. He begins by choosing a man named Abraham and his promise to Abraham is Genesis 12 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Genesis 1.28, all peoples on earth will be blessed, Baruch, through you. You see, God begins the ultimate restoration project through Abraham and through Abraham, a nation called Israel. And God gives laws to Israel that would witness to the watching world what being rightly related to God, rightly related to each other, and with creation would be like. What shalom on earth would look like. There are a number of examples in the Old Testament. For example, when God sets the year of Jubilee, when all debt is canceled, it was to point to a pattern of life when everything is restored, when all those enslaved spiritually, politically, and economically would be set free. 
That's how Israel was to be a pointer, a signpost to the rest of the world of the life that God intended and desired. No wonder that the Old Testament prophets predicted that a Messiah would come along not to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. And all of the Old Testament pointed to a time in which a Messiah would come and establish God's kingdom, God's rule and reign, and make everything right and put everything back together. Now, centuries later, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's causing quite a stir. By every indication, Jesus seemed to be the one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. But to the dismay of many, he's captured, tortured, and crucified, crushing the hopes that he was the Messiah come to establish God's kingdom. Now, we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 19, but first, you need to know something about an important biblical interpretive tool. You see, the Jewish rabbis taught something called the principle of first mention. That is, you were taught to ask, well, where is the first place that a word occurs? Because that first time an important word or phrase is mentioned in Scripture, it often establishes a precedent or a pattern that can be seen throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, I want you to notice carefully how the writer John does this here. Jesus has been taken down from the cross, and a man has come to take his body. We pick up the story in John chapter 19, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And they laid Jesus there. Now, unlike you and me, the first, pers- the first people who heard this story would have immediately said, wait, 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 did he just say the garden? Well, well, that's Genesis 3, where everything fell apart. When man decided to come out from the rule and reign of God, where sin, death, and decay first entered human history. You see, instantly connection is being made. Wait, wait, could this death and burial of Jesus in the garden be pointing to a deeper reality, something more profound? Rumors begin to spread that Jesus hasn't stayed in the tomb. And one of the first to visit the empty tomb is Mary. And we pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 11. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. There is an old African spiritual called, Oh Mary, don't you weep. The lyrics go like this. Oh Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh Mary, don't you weep. Did you know that there is so much deep and profound theology in African spirituals. You see, Mary's name in Hebrew is Miriam. Miriam is Moses' sister, the prophetess who bursts out in song in Exodus 15 upon seeing God drown Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And Miriam is there celebrating the first exodus when God delivers his people from bondage and oppression from political captivity. Now, this might be, this might be just me, but could this Miriam of John chapter 20 be saying something about the new exodus? When God's people are set free, not just from political captivity, but from bondage to sin and death? As she wept, she bent over to look into the tombs. 
and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. In one of those moments of Johannine irony, Mary thinks Jesus is the what? Gardener. Is this random? Is this coincidence? <laughs> of course not. The Apostle Paul nailed it when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21, For since death came through a man, and I might add, in the garden, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man in the garden. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Yes, Mary, Jesus is the gardener, but not in the way you think. Jesus is the new Adam, who through his death and resurrection is ushering in the new creation, in the very place where sin, death, and decay first entered human history. On Easter Sunday, in a powerful and mysterious way, God was saying back in the garden, sin, death, and decay has been conquered. And all of the effects of sin, death, and decay will now be reversed. The first believers began to draw conclusions about what ramifications the resurrection had. And the Apostle Paul, in his most thorough treatment on the meaning of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we just read, makes the case that the resurrection of Jesus the Christ accomplished the end of something and the beginning of something. The end of something and the beginning of something. Well, first, the end of what? The end of guilt, condemnation, and judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you know that the greatest threat to our hope for a better world is not the natural environment, but the various evils that continue to spring from the human heart? Church, it's not just evil out there. It's also evil in here. There is nobody who thinks that they've lived up to what they should be. We have all fallen short as parents, as children, as spouses, as friends, as citizens, as pastors. We know our shortcomings all too well. And maybe that's some of you today. Maybe you're someone who is living with deep regret at something you've done that maybe still haunts you. And you've replayed that a thousand times. And because of that, you don't know where you stand with God today. You don't know if you can be forgiven, accepted, and loved. You know, I love the fact that so many people are crying out for justice, and rightfully so. But here is the dilemma. On the one hand, we know that if there isn't 
a judge who is going to someday judge all sin and evil and injustice impartially and put everything right, there is no hope for the world. Our sense of hope is intimately tied to our belief that at the end of all this, there will be justice. Someday a perfect judge will make everything right. But if there is a perfect judge, what hope is there for you or for me? We know that we owe more than we can pay if there is a God, a perfect judge. What if payment for what we've done is due someday? Well, friend, here is the good news of Easter. The resurrection means that the payment for our sins will come due, but Jesus paid it, all of it. In the resurrection, God stamped paid in full across history and across your life if you believe that Christ died and rose for you. And that means the end of condemnation, the end of judgment and guilt forever. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification literally means declare not guilty. Christian, when God looks at us, in spite of what we look like in reality, in spite of our flaws, He has so clothed us with His righteousness, so cleansed us of our sin, that His heart now bursts at the sight of you. If you have trusted Jesus, God's face is beaming towards you right now. In the same way that he accepts his son, he now accepts you. In the same way that he loves his son, he now loves you. Is this good news? This is good news. Maybe somebody listening says, but Peter, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. No, I don't. But here's what I do know. 1 John 1, 9 says, But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. You see, when we acknowledge our brokenness and our sin and rebellion, God responds with grace. Grace says that even though we make mistakes and bad choices, you are not a mistake or a bad choice. And when we feel totally broken, that's when we're most beloved. Your sin may reach far, but grace reaches further. He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And when you place your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, a great exchange takes place. All the punishment that we are due is taken away, having been born by Him, and all the honor He is due for His righteous and perfect life is given to us. And we are loved and treated by God as if we had done all the great things that Jesus did. And I am telling you, it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. You can be welcomed and embraced fully through Christ Jesus as long as you're willing to admit your need. Have you done that today? The resurrection means the end of guilt, shame, and condemnation. But it doesn't just end there. The resurrection means something has also begun. A new world has begun. Restoration of all of creation has begun. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruit. What is the first fruits? First fruits is an actual taste of the coming harvest. 
So what is the resurrection? It's an actual taste of the future. There is a world of complete justice and love where nothing gets old, nothing decays and dies. A world of life, truth, and beauty. A world without any evil, sin, cancer, sickness, and death. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that world broke into our world. Into our world of decay has come immortality. Into our world of darkness has come light into your life, Christian, and into the church, the power of God's kingdom has come. The future has invaded the present. And that means that no matter how bleak things might look, God is on the move to save, redeem, and heal all things. And this side of heaven, we only see glimpses of that future and experience it partially. But don't underestimate the possibility that you can experience His resurrection power today. So what does the resurrection mean? Three quick implications and we're done. First, spiritual transformation is possible. We're told in the Bible that the minute that you believe in Jesus, the same power the same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead comes into your life and begins to renew you. The resurrection means you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You don't have to live the way you used to live because you are no longer the person you used to be. No, this doesn't mean I'm perfect. There is this part of me that's selfish and sinful and messed up. And I don't know about you, but that old self keeps trying to come back to life. But the clock is ticking on that old self. The resurrection life of Christ has come into you and it will not stop until it purges your soul and your spirit of all imperfections and sins. He who started a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We live in this world with the energy from the new. So those habits and sins I still struggle with, I surrender them to God every day. And when I mess up, I confess right away. Father, will you help me die to my old self and my old patterns? And I make amends to the people that I hurt. And then I let go. I let go. I refuse to allow my sins, my failures to define me anymore. You see, no matter what I have done, I know that my Heavenly Father loves me. So Christian, don't give up. Keep walking. Keep pressing in. Keep confessing. Find God-loving, Christ-exalting believers and do life with them. Get help, get guidance, but don't ever give up. Jesus Christ is alive in you. Spiritual transformation is possible. Secondly, physical renewal is promised. Why in the world did the early Christians go out into the streets during plagues that would wipe out entire cities to bring in the sick who had been abandoned by their own family, knowing that they themselves most likely were going to die. The answer lay in the resurrection. Do you know why it's so hard for some of us to face suffering, death, and disease in this world? Because we think that this broken world, this broken life, this broken body is all we're ever going to have. 
But if Jesus is risen, then this is not the only world. This is not the only life. This is not the only body you're ever going to have. There's a future world, Christian, for all those who have placed their faith in Christ. A world free of pain, disease, and death, where we will run and not be weary. We will walk and not faint. And to the extent that that future is real to you, it will change everything about how you live in the present. If you believe that you'll be able to face anything, if you believe that, you'll be so much more courageous and generous and sacrificial. Physical renewal is promised. And lastly, cosmic restoration is coming. Cosmic restoration is coming. And this is the good news of Easter that I desperately need today. You see, God's promise not to abandon this world, but to restore this world, to renew this world, has begun in Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is risen, God's new world of love and peace and justice is on its way. And here's the thing, church. How will the world know that God cares about this world? In a world filled with so much hate, injustice, and suffering, how will the world know that this future world of love, justice, and peace is headed our way? The answer is you. It's me. It's us, church. We are called to make this invisible kingdom visible. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The challenge of Easter is that you are not, are not just beneficiaries of new creation, but we are agents of the new creation. Every time justice is done, we make this invisible kingdom visible. Every time peace and reconciliation is made, we make this invisible kingdom visible. Every time families and marriages are healed, every time temptation is resisted, every time true freedom is sought and won, we make this invisible kingdom visible. That's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Let your what? Kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is, Father, make your invisible kingdom visible. Cause your rule and reign to be made manifest in my world. And yes, Father, use me so that people will see and experience shalom. Heaven on earth, in my workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my school, and yes, in our church. We pray and we rise up from our knees and we participate in the inbreaking of his kingdom by working for the Jeremiah 29, 7, Shalom, the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has carried us. Call me a dreamer. Call me naive. Call me idealistic. But I am convinced that resurrection people will make the best healers, the best reconcilers, and the best lovers of people. You see, they see that the future of God has landed, which means incredible power is available to see all sorts of things change. Some of you have given up hope. You've become cynical and hardened. But resurrection people, child of God, don't give up hope or become cynical or hardened. With hope! 
you say to your friends, because Jesus has risen, you could be better than this. With hope, you say to yourself, because Jesus has risen, you could be better than this. With hope, you say to the city of Chicago, because Jesus has risen, Chicago, you could be so much better than this. And with hope, you say to your church community, church family, because Jesus has risen, you could be so much better than this. Because Jesus is risen, you don't give up on people, you don't give up on yourself, and you don't give up on the world. That's why Paul ends this section in 1 Corinthians 15 this way, verse 58. So always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, when the final resurrection occurs as the centerpiece of God's new creation, we will discover that everything done in the present world and the power of Jesus' resurrection will be celebrated, will be included, and will be appropriately transformed. So, how does this story of the Bible end? We started in Genesis. Let me take you literally to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from his throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Revelation 22.1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. This is paradise restored. We are no longer east of the garden and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him there and they will see his face and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them life. And here's literally how the Bible ends. And they will reign with him forever and ever. Child of God, here is your future. You will reign with Jesus forever and ever. If Jesus Christ was really and truly raised from the dead, and he was, then everything will finally be all right. Will you pray with me? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is our hope and this is our joy. Exalted and resurrected Jesus, we rejoice in the good news of living hope. You have risen from the dead and this good news, Jesus, changes everything. 
because of your resurrection, we're neither afraid to die nor to live. We're not some aimless wanderers on earth. We're hope-filled children of God. We're no longer enslaved to our sins. We are now wrapped in the robe of your righteousness. Father, you are the first fruits and guarantee of a whole new order, the new creation dominion of redemption and restoration. Everything sad will come untrue. All things broken will be made new. How we long for that day, Jesus. Because of your resurrection, you are already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. All rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world now stand defeated, and one day they will be fully eradicated. Jesus, your death is a death of death, and your resurrection is the resurrection of all things. You die for our sins, and you've been raised for our justification. We are forgiven, we are beloved, and we are yours. For the wonder and gratitude that fills our hearts on this day, Lord Jesus. In light of this living hope and compelling love, this measureless grace and eternal inheritance, free us for spending the rest of our days living and loving to your glory, Jesus, in your resurrected and reigning name we pray. Amen. Receive this benediction, church, as followers of the resurrected Jesus Christ. May we commit our lives to being an agent of change to see the eradication of every evil and injustice in our world today placing our hopes firmly in the conviction that God will restore all things and make all things new. May we give of our time, our talents, and our treasures to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. You are God's servant, gifted with dreams and visions. Upon you rest the grace of God like flames of fire. Love and serve the Lord in the strength of the Spirit. May the deep peace of Christ be with you. May the strong arms of God sustain you and the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in every way. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a blessed Resurrection Sunday Church family and Lord willing, we will see you again. Take good care.